Well, let me introduce George and then we'll welcome him up. George Yancey is a scholar on race and religion in America. He holds a PhD in sociology from the University of Texas and began his career studying racial, interracial relationships in multi-ethnic churches. Since 2019, he has been at Baylor University working on a joint appointment in sociology and the Institute of Religious Studies. He's the author of several books, including So Many Christians, So Few Lions, Beyond Racial Gridlock, and his newest book, which we'll be talking about today, Beyond Racial Division, A Unifying Alternative to Colorblindness and Anti-Racism. Would you guys give a warm welcome to George? Hello, everyone. Let me ask uh, just a simple question. If what we believe about Christ, what we believe about Christianity is true, why do we sound like everyone else when it comes to racial issues? Why? Now, I'm not picking on any side because when I hear Christians talk about race, it sounds like what I hear from other people talking about race except we put a Christian veneer on it. Should we not be offering something that's different on a moral issue? such as race and ethnicity, such as racism. This is not about math. I mean, yeah, Christians talk about math the way they, everyone else does. Two plus two is four. This is a moral issue. Why do we sound like everyone else? I don't think we should. I don't think we have to. And that's what I want to talk to you all about. Okay, so my, my title is, Can Christianity Offer Us Anything Unique About Racism? In other words, does being a Christian matter as I consider racial issues? Or do I, is it like math? That my Christian faith, while it matters in other things, doesn't matter as it, you know, when it comes to math, doesn't matter when it comes to racism. And to let you know a little bit about myself, I am a Christian, I'm a sociologist, uh, I'm a scientist, and I believe that good theology and good science go together. And when they don't, you either have bad theology or you have bad science. And there's examples of both. Sometimes you have both bad theology and bad science, all right? So if what, I'm, if what my claim is through that Christian, Christ, my Christian faith gives me an insight that I may normally miss, there should be science that backs it up. So I'm going to give you a presentation that is part science and part theology. So you, you, get, you get two for the price of one, if you will. All right, so let's go ahead and get started. Oh, uh, how do we want to do the clicker? Just point at you and... All right. <laughs> All right, we live in a racialized society. And a racialized society, the definition of that is a society wherein race matters profoundly for differences in life experiences, life opportunities, and social relationships. All this means is that race matters. It matters to me as I go through society. It matters as far as the opportunities I'm going to get. Sometimes the opportunities are going to be good. You know, when I was younger, I could walk on a basketball court and they say, hey, there's, there's a black guy. I want him on my team. Sometimes the opportunities may not be so good. Being followed in a store uh, because people might think I might be stealing something. It just matters. It matters my social relationships. People react to me a certain way. Now, it's not just because I'm an African American. It matters for all of us in our social relationships. People react to you because of your race in a certain way that they may not normally react to you. Race matters. We know that in our society it's mattered negatively 
for a long time for certain people. We've had centuries of racial abuse. We also know that a lot of those laws, thank God, are no longer on the books. So what do we do now in this racialized society where we had centuries of racial abuse, but now we're saying that's all bad, how do we recover from that? That's the question that we have to deal with. And to deal with that, there's two contrasting views about racism. The first one is this, that racism is something that is overt and only done from one individual to another individual. It's race is if I treat you differently because of your race. As a professor, if I say, my white students, I'm taking five points off their exams just because I don't like white people. People say, racist, racist, racist. If I, if I use racial epitaphs to insult people, racist, racist, racist. One individual to another individual. Given that, the solution is what some people call colorblindness, to ignore race, to say race no longer matters. That's the solution if this is your definition of racism and this is your, your perception. If we wake up tomorrow and everyone's green, first thing, everyone gets the hook out. <laughs> Second thing, we say there's no more racial problems because we're all the same race, we're all the same color. This is a quasi-dream of the colorblindness perspective. We ignore race as much as possible. We can't ignore it completely, but as much as possible we ignore race. That's one solution to this, we've had centuries of racial abuse, what do you do now? We ignore race. The way you defeat racism is you defeat racism. A second perspective. Racism is structural as well as individualistic, and social institutions can perpetuate racism even when individuals do not intend to be racist. So we can't just ignore race. We have to look at how racism has impacted our social institutions. It doesn't matter whether the individual, well, it matters, but even if the individual, his or herself, is not racist, these institutions then impact marginalized people of color. So we have to tackle racism by being very proactive. Today, this is called anti-racism. Anti-racism is not new, it's just we use different terms in the past. Interracial group encounters, co confrontations, that sort of stuff. Today we call it anti-racism because that's the common term of art that we're using right now. That's another way of looking, of dealing with racism. So let's look at these one at a time. First, I wanna look at colorblindness. I wanna ask the question, is colorblindness viable? Now colorblindness basically says that we ignore racism, we ignore race and that ends racism. This can make a certain amount of sense if we generally have a fair society. Because you can say, well, if we generally are fair, then we can ignore these differences. It doesn't make that big of a difference. But if society is not fair, if there are wounds in our society, what do we know about ignoring wounds? Do they get better or they get worse? They get worse. If you don't treat a wound, it gets worse. So we have to ask the question, are there wounds continuing in our society that need treatment, that need our attention? Now here's what research says, and there is reams of research that will demonstrate this. I, I'm just doing four studies right now because time. We could spend the next half an hour going up to study. If I prepare, I, I could go spend the next half an hour. I, I teach a race ethnicity course. I have class periods where I go into, these, into a lot of research on this. But I want to show you that we still have these wounds. First study, 
There's no decrease in racial discrimination over the past, in hiring over the past 25 years. We know this through something called an audit study. An audit study is when you take an African-American or a Hispanic-American and a European-American and they both apply for a job. I won't get too complicated, but you, you do what you can to even out the applications except for their race. And what we know is that the European-American candidate will be called back for the interview more than the African-American or the Hispanic-American candidate. Now, this study came out in 2017. It's one thing you say, all right, in 2017, they're called back, say, 10% of the time. But when we look back, because what they did was a, what we call a meta-analysis. I'm trying not to get too nerdy on you. So you may know what these terms mean. A meta-analysis means you look at a lot of different studies, all right? That's all it means. Uh, when they, so they looked at studies over 25 years. It's one thing they said in 2017, we found that 10% of the time, 10% more of the time, the white person is called back. But in 2010, it was 20% of the time. We're improving. But look at this again. It's not decrease. Over the past 25 years, racial discrimination when it concerns being called back for a job, has not decreased. The wound is still going. Second study. Driving while black. Now, you probably have heard of it. This, is a, this seems to be a pretty young group, so you all probably have heard the term driving while black. Uh, African Americans are pulled over more than European Americans. This study was in Ohio. There's other studies in other states. We know this is true. Now, they know this because what they'll do is they'll observe, uh, they'll, they'll look at how often people are pulled over in their race, and they'll observe people driving, because it could be that blacks drive faster than whites. But the sad news is, we are as bad of drivers as white people are. <laughs> so, the and here's, here's the uh, final nail in the coffin, if you will, to driving while black is a real thing. The one time where they don't find driving while black happen is at night. And at night is when you have a harder time seeing the race of people in cars. So you can look at this and say, it is inconvenient, and it may cost you some money to take it, but is it really that big of a deal? Well, I put this study because it connects to a large framework of studies that look at our criminal justice system. And we know that all the things being equal, when we equalize things, and we use our stats to equalize things, that if you're an African-American or Hispanic-American, all things being equal, you're more likely to be arrested. All things being equal, you're more likely to be charged. All things being equal, you're more likely to be put in, into a trial. You have to go to trial. And we also know that if you're convicted, all things being equal, you're going to serve a longer sentence. Okay, next study, please. Residential segregation. Now. I know that we're in this paradise called uh, Louisiana. You know, this is great weather. I mean, you all get this year round. Boy, wow. I, we, should, we should have more people moving here because this weather is great. So you all probably don't have residential segregation. You know, you probably are pretty, you know. But in other states that are not paradise Louisiana, we do have residential segregation. Uh, we know it's residential segregation impacts educational outcomes. So if you have a black area of town, you have a black school, right? Because the kids in the black area of town, they go to the same neighborhood school. White area of town, spank area of town. And because of this, we know that the schools vary in quality. So the black schools 
don't do as well as the white schools. What this means is if you're a black kid, you go to a black school, you're going to, to an inferior school, which is going to impact your chance, of course, to go on to college and things of this nature. For reasons I won't go into, I didn't go to a black school when I went to high school. I went to a Hispanic school. What was interesting is there was, there was, there was a black school. I just didn't go to it. There's also a couple of white schools. When I went off to college, I met a lot of people from my hometown. They went to the white school. Why didn't uh, kids from my mostly Hispanic school come to college with me? My Hispanic school was good at one, one thing really well, industrial arts. We build a home every year. So the kids, would, they were concentrating, teaching these kids on how to lay bricks and do carpentry and do plumbing and all this sort of stuff. Nothing wrong with that. Good paying jobs. But who's going to run the country? People who lay bricks or people who go to college? So in a sense, what the Hispanic school was doing was, y'all don't need college that much. We'll teach you a trade. We'll teach you how to build a home. Next one. And our uh, medical health care. Uh, this came out of a study. They actually looked at 37 studies. About 26 of them had solid evidence of racism in our health care system. Sometimes it was how people were treated. Sometimes it was what they were prescribed, things of this nature. So in our health care system, African Americans and Hispanic Americans go through it, and they experience this racism. They may not always be able to know exactly what it is, but they're experiencing it. You want to know at least one of the reasons why African-Americans and Hispanic-Americans were, were less likely to get COVID vaccinations over the past couple of years, they don't trust our healthcare system because they experience racism in it. And if, for those of you who know about the Tuskegee experiment, you know, obviously we don't have anything quite that egregious that I know of uh, at this point in time, but that's part of, I still talk to African-Americans and say, well, I ain't going to the doctor because of the Tuskegee experiment. So we do have these gaping wounds. So when you tell a person of color, just ignore race. We'll just treat everyone the same, but just ignore race. And these wounds are still here. The wound is not healing. It's getting worse. Colorblindness doesn't work. Brings us to anti-racism. Okay, so how do, what was anti-racism? Here's how I prepared for my book to, to understand anti-racism. I didn't want to study academics and, you know, because we sometimes talk about stuff and in the general public people are going, huh? So I didn't want to do that. I want to read the popular anti-racism books over there. At the time, the, the two most popular books on the New York Times bestseller list and on Amazon, you probably remember this about 2020, was uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist and White Fragility. So I read those books. Also read books such as So You Want to Talk About Race, uh, Me and White for Supremacy, things of this nature. So I wanted to read these books and find whether the common threads there's tying this philosophy together. So I know what people are talking about when they talk about anti-racism, what they're reading about. So here's three threads that I feel really tie these books together. The first one is very proactive in dealing with racism. So we don't wait and see what's going to happen. We tackle racism. We go after racism. We aren't just going to sit back. We're going to see where racism is, and we're going to go after it. Very proactive. All these books are very proactive. You know, you don't sit back. You have to confront racism. Second point, working to dismantle all aspects of racism. So these books talk about how racism is, in, is multifaceted. It's not just the individual. It's systematic. It's institutional. It 
it's in a lot of, it's not in just one or two institutions, it's in a lot of our economic institutions, our uh, education, our families, so forth and so on. So multifaceted and proactive. And honestly, these first two principles, you know what? This sounds like a good beginning. It's this third principle that's problematic. And that's this. And the responsibility of whites is to do what people of color want. Now, people don't say it quite that way. But let's just break it down for a second. What is white fragility? Read white fragility if you haven't done that. And she states what whites are to do is to uh, listen to people of color and then say they'll try to do better. Read how to be an anti-racist. Kimmy lays out, this is what anti-racism is, and we expect people, what he, what he as an African-American person, has devised, and we expect people to, to follow it. Read these books. Some of them talk about, I think Me and White Supremacy talked about how they expect whites to support them financially, their activism, and to convince other whites of anti-racism. There is no attempt at dialogue here. Whites, this is what you're supposed to do. That's problematic and I'll show you why. Let's ask, is this approach successful? Because I know why a lot of people feel this is a great approach, but as a scholar, I have to ask, does this actually work? And remember, this is not something that is new. We've had this for decades now, all right? Some form of anti-racism, so there's a lot of research on it. And one final thing before we look at the research, think about who's doing the research. The people doing the research are not wearing MAGA hats. These are people who are pretty progressive, even radical in their racial approach. So what does the research say? First thing, when it comes to one of the things they talk about, diversity training, uh, oh, actually, uh, I forgot, I still had this in here. Uh, one of the claims made is that bias is implicit, uh, but the implicit test of bias is really flawed. I won't go that much into that, but go ahead, go to the next one. Diversity training. Uh, the, 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 you know, we can change people's perspective through diversity training, through, through telling them what to do, right? Well, actually, we can't. Diversity training has little long-term effect on prejudice. What we find is that if you could do some sort of training, and immediately afterwards, you see a reduction of prejudice. You come six months later, it's gone back to its normal levels. It's like this. You send your kid off to Bible school. Kid comes back and the kid is making up his bed, and the kid is eating his vegetables, and the kid is respectful, you know. And then six months later, the kid's bed's a mess. You know, kid, kid won't touch the vegetables. Uh, you know, the, 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 the kid's no longer respectful. It didn't take, right? That's diversity training. It doesn't take. It doesn't really change. It makes people feel guilty for a little while, and then they go back to normal. Next one, please. Now, a big topic in anti-racism is privilege, white privilege. And what we know is, uh, from this study, is that when you teach about white privilege, you don't necessarily create more sympathy for people of color. The idea is we teach about white privilege, and people will go, oh, this is why people of color are struggling. But what you do is you create less sympathy for marginalized whites. So now people are asking questions such as, well, why are those whites homeless? They have, they have white privilege. Why are they on drugs? They have white privilege. What's happening is if you teach about privilege badly, you create less sympathy for marginalized people. Because no more sympathy for people, marginalized people of color, less sympathy for marginalized whites. 
Next one. Anti-racism approaches actually can lead to declines in hiring of minority groups. This is a really interesting study from Dobbins et al. Uh, what they did was they went to companies and they looked at how many, uh, the percentage of managers, not workers, managers were people of color. They looked at what techniques they were using to increase the number of people of color and managers. They went away and came back five years later and they looked at whether or not they increased the managers of color. And they found that when you use things such as uh, mentor diversity training, grievance committees, uh, trying to shape the job hiring process directly, you actually have fewer managers of color five years later. When you engage in a conversation with those managers of color and have them work with you, you actually had more. One more, one more, please. Oh, I guess, I guess not one more. Okay, so why is this not working? Well, there's a truth that both approaches lack, and that's this, human depravity. Here's where I'm gonna get into a little bit of theology. All right, so think about this. Both colorblindness and anti-racism have one critical thing in common. Both of them are flaws that tell you, look, we have figured it out, you need to do what we're telling you to do. You need to ignore race, you need to engage in anti-racism. What this does is it assumes that you have overcome human depravity enough to clearly see everything. And that's why I think they both fail. They look at human depravity in other individuals, perhaps, but human depravity starts when I begin to look at it in myself. If I'm only looking at human depravity in other people, then I'm, I don't get what human depravity is. It's not that I've figured it out and everyone else has not. It's that none of us have figured it out. And it is the key to our Christian faith when we think about it, because if we don't have human depravity, why do we need to be saved? This is not, this is not just some sort of minor tenet of Christianity. We don't talk about that much, understandably so. We don't want to talk about how depraved we are, but it is a major tenet. Whenever we talk about needing to save people, we're talking about saving them because of human depravity. There's scriptural backing of human depravity. And here's uh, just some verses. You see Genesis 6, 5. Uh, Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention, thoughts of his heart was evil continuously. Uh, Romans 3, 10, 11. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one sees for God. And 1 Corinthians 2, 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Uh, for their fault. I mean, we can go through the Bible and find it. It is a core element of our Christian faith. It is a core factor in that relationship. Now, to really understand the difference between this and what we're seeing, I need to go take it back to my graduate school. Because in graduate school, I learned about a very important concept known as human, human perfectibility. So, yeah, go to the next slide, please. This emerged from the Enlightenment movement. The notion of the Enlightenment movement was we need to transcend beyond the uh, traditional religions, uh, and we have evolved to a state where we can perfect society and create perfect humans. Well, not, maybe not perfect, but at least better humans. We can create a better society as a reliance on human ability in order to achieve the goals that was before them. Because in the Enlightenment movement, we're not relying on God, the church, they're reacting against the Catholic church. We're not relying on that. We're relying on our own human abilities to achieve, human perfectibility. 
All right, so humans will become better with education was one of the aspects. When we, when we figure out what's happening, we'll educate people, and then people will figure out, you know, through that education, people will become better. Uh, humans are rational creatures that can be convinced to become better. There's a subject of rationality. Now, at the time, when I was in graduate school, I didn't have kids. So I did not know how flawed that assumption was. <laughs> but there is a subject of rationality that if humans can see that this is a better approach and we can appeal to their rationality, they'll accept it and then they will help us to create this better society. Now, one way to think about this, those of you who are familiar with, say, Marxism, if you're familiar with the ideas of Marxism, that Marx believes that this, this revolution that's going to come is going to upset the system and people will create this better utopian society. And it's not just about the economics. True Marxism, the economics sets up everything else that's going to be great and good. And this is not to say that the entire Enlightenment movement was Marxist, but they had similar ideas that if we, can, if we could change uh, society, we can create this utopia. We know we have directions. We know we can educate people. People are rational. We can move forward. And you can really see this if you pay attention to how people make arguments today along these ways. As it concerns race, if our insight, be it anti-racism or colorblindness, is adopted, then we can move towards the end of racial alienation. So what you hear is, look, in a sense, they're doing this. They're saying, look, we figured it out. You adopt our philosophy, and we'll end racial alienation. Now, it's really clear when we look with the anti-racism literature that that's what they're doing. Some people may not see it in the colorblindness, but it's clearly clear there, too. Just to give you an example, about a year and a half ago, uh, I, you know, I, I have three kids, a six, five, and three-year-old. Yeah, y'all can go, how? Uh, I don't know, you know. God, okay? Uh, and about a year and a half ago, I was thinking about talking to my oldest kid about racial issues. Now, I know that I'm a race scholar, but it was the first time in my life I had a five-year-old. So, you know, I have all this, all this training on race, but how do you talk to a five-year-old about these issues, and how do you do it in a way that's healthy, and all this, sort of, all this other stuff. So I, I went to that fountain of knowledge to figure it out, Facebook. <laughs> now, in all honesty, I know that I sometimes post stuff that gets people's blood flowing, but I just wanted to post, you know, I just want to reach out to some of my friends who are also raising kids of color and say, hey, how do y'all approach talking about racial issues? So I just made a little post about that. Thought it was a pretty innocent post, thought I'd get some advice, and I got a few people who say, well, this is what I do. But I also got a lot of pushback for that. I said, all the things I post, why that? I got pushback from people who said, why are you trying to raise good black men? My, my kids are all boys. Just try to raise good Christian men, and that's all you have to worry about. Why are you bringing up race? Why do you talk about race with your kids? Now, at first it was like, why do you, I mean, you know, you raise your kids, uh, you know, what is all this? And then I realized, for these individuals, they're so married to the colorblindness perspective that someone else not raising their kids colorblind is a threat. The solution is everyone raise their kids colorblind and we solve the whole problem. Both of these philosophies are, we have the answers, you need to follow our answers. Now contrast this with human depravity. Human depravity says this, 
Humans are inherently selfish, and that cannot be taken away with education. There's a really interesting study out there, or interesting research did this. So when we do surveys with whites, we, one thing we found, one thing that is like the bedrock of these surveys is the more education whites have, the less racist they are. So question after question after question, whatever it deals with race, the more education whites have, the less racist they are. So I had a couple of colleagues that said, hmm, that's interesting. Be careful when a sociologist says, hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> so what they did was they looked at the surveys and they said, okay, here's the survey. It says that the more education whites are, the more willing they are to send their kids to schools that are racially integrated. That's what the survey says. And this other survey says the more educated whites are, the more willing they are to live in an integrated neighborhood. That's what the survey says. So let's see where whites send their kids and live. So they got data. And what they found out that among whites, the more educated they are, after controls such as income, so this is not an income effect, and other things, uh, you know, sex and region and all that other stuff, the more educated whites are, the less likely they are to send their kids to an integrated school, and the less likely they are to live in an integrated neighborhood. It's as if education doesn't make whites morally better, but teaches them how to hide their sin. Education, and I'm sure this effect is not just on whites, education doesn't necessarily make us morally better. You know, get, I, and then I'm an educator, I'm not anti-education, but some pretty immoral people are highly educated as well. So only accounting, so education is not gonna do it, only counting by our desire to protect our own self-interest can we deal with group conflict. Let's realize, this is human depravity. We are all deprived in every racial group, including my own. We have human depravity. So we do not account for the fact that we tend to want to protect ourselves and our group, then we can't get past the group conflict. The conflict is not going to end by certain groups saying, you guys, need to, you guys need to conform to what we are saying. That's not gonna end it. Because even if people do conform, that group itself suffers from human depravity. So, only holding each other accountable can we find solutions for racial alienation. What I'm arguing is we cannot find solutions by winning the war that we're having with each other. We find solutions by finding ways to work together. Some people have said, is this a path in between anti-racism and colorblindness? And I say no. This is a qualitatively different direction. This, I'm not saying, let's be half colorblind, let's be half anti-racist. There'll be times where we should, maybe should be all anti-racist, or maybe sometimes we should be all colorblind. But that has to be worked out together. This is a qualitatively different approach, because it's not about winning what I want. It's about finding ways we can live together. And that's how we have to head it. A mutual accountability approach then, go ahead, is a Christian-based approach. Now, let me stop for a second. Does that mean only Christians can do it? No. It's, I would say forgiveness is a Christian-based approach, but research has shown that whether you're a Christian or not, people who forgive are healthier. So I will be happy to, to, to have a talk like this without the Bible verses and everything, based purely on my academic uh, understanding to a non-Christian group. Absolutely. And bring them aboard. Christian-based approach whereby we recognize that people of all races have a sin nature that has to be accounted for. 
Thus, everyone has to work towards healthy interracial communication to solve racial problems. If I had an elevator speech on what my book is about, you know, the elevator speech, you, you get it, you enter an elevator, you're on the fifth floor. So it says, oh, you wrote a book. What's it about? You got to the first floor to tell them what it's about. Elevator speech. Hey, elevator speech is like, I think the best way to solve racial relations is to learn how we can communicate better so we can find compromises and work together. That'd be my elevator speech on race relations. And then, and then if they want to follow up, then you go more in depth. Why I don't think it's already happening, you know, some of the problems, some of the, some of the techniques, things of this nature. That's basically it. Because do we truly have honest conversations on race in our country today? And the, asking the question almost answers the question. Because if we did, we wouldn't be in the situation we are. Now I looked at the empirical work at the others. Is there empirical work on this? So, yes. Under the right conditions, we know that interracial contact helps alleviate bias. So, the, you know, the more we're together, under the right conditions, we actually have less bias towards one another. Polarizing each other so we're, we don't interact with each other is counterproductive. Next one, please. Having a common group identity also increases positive feelings. So all this means is the more we can identify, group, have a group identity, you know, I guess one of the ways to, to think about it is uh, a couple years ago, wasn't LSU the uh, national football champions in, in college football? Uh, is, is that a sore spot here because you all are Lafayette or not? I mean. Okay, all right, all right. I'm just making sure, you know, I have to know my audience to know whether, you know, I say, hey, this is a great thing, and then the audience is like looking at me with stab eyes, and, you know, that's not good. But in this state, wasn't there like a kind of a group identity? Like if you went to an LSU ball, uh, football game or if you watched on TV with friends, wasn't it, hey, we're in it together kind of deal? No matter what the other person was, you know, by the, their race or religion or whatever, there's just that group identity kind of unifies us, right? The more we have that, a church naturally should have that. A church, I mean, as Christians, we should naturally build upon that. But, and so what we should be doing is trying to create more of a group identity uh, with as many people as possible. That's the direction for us to go because it helps to increase positive feelings. You feel good towards that other, uh, did you all have like those tiger finger things where you're just, uh, you know, hey, that per uh, that, yeah, I'm with that person. Yeah, go tigers, go tigers, you know. Okay, next one. Okay, perspective taking. Perspective taking is shown to be effective in long-term change in behaviors. When we learn how to take the perspectives of others, that's very effective in long-term change. If I can learn how to uh, understand the perspective of people uh, who are different races than me, that creates long-term change. When we get polarized, when we think I have the right answers, I got to force it on you. I'm not perspective taking, I'm trying to force you into what I believe. Is I trying to understand where you are coming from so that we can work together. Next one. Collaborative communications in an atmosphere of mutual support creates volitional compliance. Now, think about what's been happening in, in Virginia and in Texas and in some other states where we've had these state school boards and we've had all this protest happening and, and, and people are 
are protesting what they call critical race theory and, and all that sort of stuff. Here's one way to look at it. In 2020, some of these school boards, I think, saw, look at the racial problems we have. We gotta do something about it. So they put things into their curriculum. Now I'm not gonna go into whether it's critical race theory or not. To me, that's not that important. They put certain things in, into the curriculum. They did so because they thought it was the right thing to do. They just thought they had the power to do it. And other individuals had their critiques, to put it mildly, of what they were placing in there. They'd never really been consulted. They'd never been talked to about it. They said, this is what we're going to teach. So they got mad, and now they started protesting. In Virginia, they basically helped to elect the new Republican governor, right? That was a big issue in Virginia. They're probably going to get rid of some school board members. Why bring this up? You can have a great solution, and I'm not, I'm not making a judgment on the solution whether it's good or not. I'm just saying, what, let's, let's assume it's a great solution. But if you don't get volitional compliance, your solution can be out the window in two years. What you want to do is you want to build compliance. You want to have everyone feel like they had a say on board. Perhaps approach a different way. People can say, well, I have a problem with this, and you could change that thing and still get a lot of what you want. Or you can try to, try to get it all, and you can get what you got in Virginia. S skill development is the key to successful diverse, tra diverse training. Diverse training generally uh, is not useful, but when it is, it's because we develop skills rather than tell people what to think. We develop critical, true critical racing, critical thinking skills rather than telling people what to think. We need a new way of approaching things, a, a new approach than what we've been doing. Collaborative conversation, learning how to talk to one another, and learning how to move forward is vital in that new approach. So let me finish with just some implications of this approach. Uh, I know that it's still somewhat nebulous because of my time and, you know, the, the book does flesh it out more so, and with the card, you do get 40% off, so that's my one plug. Uh, and it has a QR code, so you can get it right away if you want. Uh, but let's just talk about the implications of this approach. First, no one has all the right answers. I'm a race scholar, I, you know, African-American, I, I should have all these great answers. I'm telling you, I don't have all the right answers. I still learn. We get better answers by listening to each other. So that's key. Yes, I should study. Yes, I should go on my own and think. But I also need to listen to other people. Because sometimes they get perspectives that I say, okay, I hadn't thought about it that way. We need intentional efforts at collaborative conversation. What I'm not saying is, hey, let's get in a room and just talk. Unfortunately, in our society, we're so polarized. A lot of times we wind up what we do, what we see on social media. We just talk. We need, so we have to intentionally engage in collaborative conversations. We have to intentionally talk with a goal-oriented purpose, we're trying to understand others instead of just trying to win. This is not saying that what you believe is not important and you shouldn't push it, but you need how to promote it in a, in a better, actually more effective way if you look at the research. I don't have time to look at the research on how you actually promote your, your ideas, how you persuade others. Actually, it's community building rather than polarizing. Yes. Needs of everyone must be respected. You know, beyond the other things, the problem with colorblindness is it does not respect the needs of people of color. 
And the problem with anti-racism is it does not really respect the needs of whites. Because if you're telling whites, the only thing you need to do is do what people of color want, you have no respect for their needs. Everyone's needs has to be respected. Now, I want to be very clear on this. When I say mutual accountability, the mutual part is the entering into the conversation. It does not mean that solutions are going to be mutual. Solutions may well be, it may often be, that European Americans have to make more adjustments than people of color, okay? Because of our history, because of what's happened. But everyone, regardless of race, has responsibility to enter in the conversation in good faith and attempt to understand others. That is mutual. That's the mutual part. But everyone's needs have to be respected. Skills of active listening and productive communication is to be valued. Active listening is what I do when I do qualitative work, when I interview people. I have a book out on atheists. I interviewed about 25 atheists. I was not trying to convince them that atheism is wrong. I was really trying to listen so I could understand them so I could get the information I needed for my book. When you are actively listening, you want to understand where people are coming from, that's what you're doing. This is a skill that can be developed. It takes some work, but it can be developed. I, I admit I don't always do it the way I should, you know, in my day-to-day -day life. Uh, so, you know, I need to work on it more, too. We all need to work on it. It should be a skill we should constantly be working on. Communication. We got to talk to people in a way they can hear us. If we don't, literally, when people feel threatened, research has shown people cannot hear what you have to say. A person feels threatened, they turn off. And their, their minds go to, you know, the LSU glory years or something like that. They cannot hear you. And people have to understand this. I want to give a couple of examples of this, because I think this is a very important point, because the way we talk matters. You could be totally in the right and sin in the way that you communicate you're totally in the right. All right? So I'm going to give you I'm an example from what I say is comes from a more colorblind perspective and one comes from a more anti-racism perspective. Here's what sometimes people come by perspective say that is not useful. I don't see race. So when you say that to a person of color, I know from talking to people what you mean is, I'm not going to treat you any differently because of your race. But what you're communicating is, your racial identity does not matter to me. Now, I'm the first one to admit that my racial identity is not the most important identity. That's being a child of God. But it is important to me. It is part of who I am. It's part of what shaped me. I can't just jettison that. So that becomes threatening. And when you say it that way, a lot of times people of color cannot hear the next thing you have to say. Now here's something that uh, comes from the other side, the anti-racism side. And that's something like this. You know, uh, trafficking in white supremacy or talking about ending whiteness, uh, you know, things of this nature. Because what happens to a lot of whites is they hear that, and I know that white supremacy is, the, the definition of it changes depending on who you talk to, and I know there's definitions that are not about personal animosity, and that's, that, that, that's all well and good. Most people who hear white supremacy, what do they think? They think the KKK. And so when you say that, I say, but I really don't mean that you're part of the KKK, it's, they're already gone. You chose to use a term that's going to activate that, and they're gone. And what you say next is not going to matter. So it's not just a how can we listen, how can we communicate? I'll tell you what I used to say when I uh, was doing this 15 years ago. When I was talking to a mostly white audience, I wanted 
they ought to be open to the possibilities of institutional discrimination and of how subtle racism. I would not start off talking about racism. That would not cross my lips. What I would say early on in my speech, to get their attention, to make sure they pay attention to me, was talking about a study I just did. And this is, this is true, this is an actual study I just did, that showed that for the average single white person, the race of who they dated was more important than the faith of who they dated. In other words, they're more willing to date a white atheist than a black Christian. And when I said that, I had their attention, because I knew two things. One, these people were not traditional racists. These people were not, hey, you know, I mean, they're, they're listening to a black guy, so that tells you right there that they're, they're, they're not, I can't be in the same room with a black person. They're, they're not traditional racists. But second, while they may not care about racial issues, they care about their kids. And they care about their kids staying in the faith. And the idea of their kid, because they're not traditional racists, dating and marrying a white non-Christian and bypassing a Christian of color, that shocked them. Now I had their attention. Now they wanted to listen to me about racial issues if they didn't before. I was talking in the language of my listener. And that's what we have to learn how to do. And work is towards switches are win-win instead of win-lose. We got to escape the mentality, we're going to beat these people. It's not about beating people. It's about working with people. Because they're not going away. I think there's a mentality, if we beat these people, they'll go away. They're not going away. Have you been in our country? Uh, you know, we'll, we'll have a different president in a few years, and, or maybe not. But still, the polarization will go away. Sides are tr trading power. They're not going away. So why don't we learn how to work with people? instead of trying to beat them, beat them down. And maybe they'll stop trying to beat us down, too. And maybe we'll build community instead of polarization. Thank you for your time, and I eagerly await your questions. Okay. All right. Thank you, guys. Well, this is going to be fun. This is going to be uh, something new. We've never done a Q&A like this in our service before. Glad so, to be your uh, first. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you for being willing to experiment with me here. Uh, but we already had a lot of great questions come in, uh, and so, and I had a, a, several of my own that I wanted to ask, and so uh, we'll, we'll get to as many as we can, um, and uh, you know, maybe me and you can do another podcast episode, like a follow-up, sure. that uh, sure. and, yeah, get to more of the questions and uh, some of my questions as well. So thank you guys for sending in your questions. Uh, feel free to keep sending them in uh, while we're talking, uh, because I can see them coming in live. So, uh, so definitely feel free to shoot those in. And like I said, even uh, if we can't get to all of them, we'll do, so, uh, we'll do a podcast episode with some spillover questions. So uh, first of all, thank you for your, uh, for your talk today. It was great. I really enjoyed it. Um, I finished reading George's book last week, uh, Beyond Racial Division, uh, and uh, it, it's excellent. Uh, I highly and uh, wholly recommend it. And so uh, definitely take advantage of that uh, discount that he offers with a card so you can pick up a copy, especially if you're really looking for uh, any of his arguments, whether that be some of his critiques, and, but then especially the, the positive arguments he puts forward. Uh, if you're looking to see any of that more fleshed out, uh, then definitely get the book because he goes into a lot more detail than what he can do in a 30-minute talk, obviously. So uh, well, let's get started with, uh, with, with some of these questions. Like I said, we had a lot of great ones already. Um, a lot of really practical questions. Uh, let's start. I, I like uh, these questions here. Um, so this first one is, do biased behaviors and racism end up getting grouped together? Uh, or uh, I, I think what 
what the question is, or does sometimes culture differentiate? Yeah, Let's see if I understand the question. Uh, biased behaviors and racism, uh, as opposed to culture. Uh, first, I think it depends on how you define racism. You know, I think that uh, people have different definitions. Is racism just about me acting in a biased way towards individuals, or is it more encompassing? Mm -hmm. Because if it's the second one, then biased behaviors you don't is not necessary for racism at all. Uh, there's biased outcomes that may or may not be tied to how people actually are beha behaving. Uh, their behavior may be just what they're supposed to do in society, and, and that just goes along. Just, for example, the, the school I talked about, that uh, a school that focuses in on uh, industrial arts as opposed to academic excellence, the people in that school, I don't think we're, we're acting in a biased way against Hispanic Americans. They're doing their jobs, basically. But the, the outcomes, obviously, was biased in, in that way. Uh, I think, and then there's a culture component uh, to this question. I'm trying to see exactly how this fits. Uh, does, is our culture, I guess maybe, I, I don't know what the person means, does our culture help to shape our biased behaviors? Maybe that's what they mean. And undoubtedly the answer is yes, uh, that our culture would help us shape the biased behaviors that we do have. Our culture, people underestimate just how powerful our culture is, uh, how, we are, how we're convinced about things, just because our culture says this. So, you know, our culture used to say that, uh, that women were intellectually inferior to men and blacks were intellectually inferior to whites and all that sort of stuff. And, we, and everyone bought it, even blacks and women bought that. So, uh, so, and our culture says stuff today that I think some of, us, some of us as Christians say, well, that's just not true, but people buy because of the culture. So. Uh, so yeah, definitely our culture shapes how we see things and how we may act out in bias. Yeah, and uh, that was uh, one family with a couple of questions. Their second question, which I also would like mm -hmm. to hear, was, uh, so how did you end up talking to your kids about race? <laughs> you know, it is an ongoing process of figuring it out. Kind of, I, I, I say is similar to talking to your kid about sex, uh, in that, you know, it's an ongoing thing. It's not like, let's have the sex talk, we're done! Yeah, I wish it was that way. Uh, <laughs> now, at this point, and you know, both my wife and I, we're just figuring out as we go along because there's not good stuff out there. I, mean, I know Kendi has his anti-racism baby book, and uh, like you know, that, I'm definitely not using that. Uh, right now, with our kids at our age, we are focusing on awareness. You know, we're not really getting into the to the relationship part of it and that sort of stuff. Uh, I'm interracially married, so they can see that blacks and whites can get along, uh, usually. 99% uh, <laughs> of the time, you know. Uh, but uh, we're, you know, we're trying to bring up, so what we've done is we've taken our, our, our boys to, uh, to uh, Juneteenth celebrations, to Martin Luther King Day celebrations. Uh, the, our oldest one reads, and he really reads quite well for his age. He reads a lot, and so we're getting some material for him to read. We want them to be aware of the issues of race and racism in our society historically and, and today, and we think that that's the stage that they're at. And that's all we got, because you know, at this point, that's because that, their age is, I, I do think at, at a certain age, we're gonna wanna talk to them about, okay, what does this mean as far as how do you relate to people? How do you uh, how do we work out problems? How do we uh, illustrate that this? And I do think that, given my approach, 
the more that we can engage, we can illustrate that uh, in our lives, the better off we're going to be. So, uh, so yeah, I don't have I don't have the answers to that. And, and when I do, maybe I'll write a book on that. But right now, I don't I don't have the complete answers. We're still we're still working it out. You know, when our when our boys, you know, get when they're all eighteen or above and they're sharp on racial issues, I say, hey, we we did a good thing. Then I'll write a book on that. Great. You're a scientist, so you always like to make sure that your that your methods, My data, yeah. yeah, that the da- data is there yeah, before you right, promote yes. your methods. So yeah. I understand that. Uh, here's another good one. Uh, we're we, we're getting a lot of questions still coming in. They're all good, but uh, but I really like this one. Uh, there's a category of people that are open to mutual conversations on race, uh, but what are ways that you think through approaching people who are not as open? Right. Very fair question. I think about half of the people in this country, about half, maybe a little bit more, are uh, in a situation where they, they haven't thought much about race or when they've looked around at colorblindness and anti-racism, they, for different reasons, they, 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 it doesn't fit with them and they want something else. So I think there's half the people that are open to, to a conversation. I do think there's, there's a little bit less than half, but they're there. People are either so wedded to colorblindness or so wedded to anti-racism that you really can't have a productive conversation at this point in time. And so when I run to those folks, for myself, I cannot hit my head against the wall again and again and again. I just say, you know, God bless you and, and move on. You know, it's not unlike evangelism in that you know that there are people who are ready to hear and people who are not ready to hear. And they're not ready to hear, and just hitting your head against the wall just does nothing. As it maybe alienate them. You love them, you care for them, and you wait for the opportunity to come. I think we reach the half that is ready to move in this direction, and they become more active. I think we'll start cutting into the others because they'll start seeing, hey, there's something working here. I'm actually working on research right now, which I hope will really more overtly document how useful. Uh, this cloud conversation approach really is. And so I hope to, you know, it's going to take a couple of years because this is how long research takes, but I'm hoping a few years say, hey, look, this is actually working. And then we're gonna, we can go to those who are more close-minded and say, we got science directly that's showing this is benefiting. That's not going to convince everyone, but we can convince more of them. But I think we're working with about 50% that are open to having this conversation right now, to be honest. And, and we, can, we should start with that 50% and then see if we can move on as the process goes along. We're getting several questions related to uh, education mm-hmm. uh, and also related to what you had talked about before with that study that showed that more educated whites were actually less likely to send their kids to yeah. uh, integrated schools. Um, so, so yes, we're getting several questions about education. I think, uh, I think this one might help cover them all the most. Uh, school of choice is a conservative view as the solution to having black and white, uh, quote unquote, black yeah. and white schools right. that have huge funding disparities. Uh, this is opposed by the anti-racist movements. What are your thoughts on a good solution? Yeah, I think that's interesting. Uh, yeah, I think there's merit to school choice as far as academics. Honestly, I think that school choice would probably help out a lot of kids uh, better. As far as racial issues, though, uh, yeah, I, I think that there are, there are some potential downfalls to that. Uh, there's, there's a different study that shows that, that there's a school choice situation. What they found out was that whites were sending their kids to schools that were predominantly white, 
which is not a surprise, but the reason I'm always given is these are better schools. But in this particular case, there was a black school that was doing a little bit better than the white school. Yet the white parents are still prioritizing their kids to, these, to this white school that was doing worse than this black school. So I do share the concerns that school choice, even though I, I, I do think overall, academically, it probably would benefit uh, kids overall. Uh, but I do share the concerns that it may create more racial polarization. If we had situations where we had more of a collaboration where we could understood each other better, perhaps it wouldn't be that way. But in the world we live in today, I fear that it could do that. Yeah, I see that argument. And so as a follow-up question, what would be our roles as, uh, as parents, community <laughs> members, and especially we have a lot of educators here, what would be our role in that collaborative conversation when it comes to uh, education? So here's something that uh, I think schools should consider. All right. I know, and I don't want to get too deep into the weeds on the critical race theory stuff, because I know that that's a big topic. But, you know, you do something, critical race theory, you get protests. And whether it's critical race theory or not, people are going to protest. I think we need to talk a little bit less about doing racial justice. I'm not saying I'm against racial justice, but more about having better interracial conversations. Because I think you can get to justice through the conversations easier then you're saying, we're doing racial justice, and we're going to put this in their schools. Because that's going to trigger people. They're going to say, you're going to do critical race theory, they're going to protest you. I think having some, and, and I also think that you need to bring people into, in, you need to bring the parents into the conversation. You don't need to set something up and say, this is what we're going to do, like it or leave it. That's, that's going to get you the, the yelling mother at the, school, at the school board meeting. So what you need to do, I think, is work on a program uh, that is actually, and I'm actually working with a couple of colleagues to try to develop this for Christian schools, but I think it could be amenable to, to uh, secular schools as well, uh, that, that encourages the sort of conversations that's going to really make a difference, if it's done the right way. Uh, and I think that that is one of the ways. There is, there is no silver bullet in this. There's, there's no guarantee. And... Uh, I, I can't say if you do this that you're not going to get some angry parents still say you can do CRT, but I think you're, you're, t you're taking away at least a little bit of the, uh, of the animosity. Say, look, you know, what we want to do is you're gonna, we're gonna, your kids are going to grow up in a, in a society that's going to be racially diverse. We don't know how to get along with each other. We think it's very important that they learn how to talk to people of different races. Don't you think that's important? And I think if you have that sort of approach, you have a better chance uh, of dealing with this than if you come in with some sort of... Uh, talking about racial justice. And once it's talking about the language of the listener is incredibly important. And some people don't want to do that because they say, well, we want justice. Okay, if you want justice, this is a better way to do it than coming in and proclaiming you want justice. It's kind of like, you know, uh, one of my kids is kind of obstinate. So if we tell him to do something, he's going to do the opposite, you know. So we're learning that reverse psychology trick that parents know so well. Uh, and it works sometimes. So, uh, so sometimes you can't just say, we're going to do this because this is what we really want. You've got to learn how to uh, talk to people in a way they can hear you so that you can get more people on board. And so that's, that's how, if you're an educator and you're in a situation to, to, uh, to deal with that, to, to influence the process, I would consider that sort of approach, uh, more of a collaborative conversations, interracial communication approach, in order so we can understand each other and then work out our racial problems together.
And by the way, let me just be clear. This is not just about so we can get along with each other. This is about how we solve problems. We learn to talk so we can solve problems. Getting along is great and, and to be encouraged. But that's not, the, that's not the ultimate goal of this. The ultimate goal of this is to solve problems. So whenever we have these uh, conversations, uh, particularly within the church, because um, let me ask this question first. You, you, you started your talk by talk, saying how we as Christians uh, so often just end up parroting whatever the world says, mm-hmm. whether that be the yeah. colorblindness approach yeah. or the anti-racism approach. And this is something else that I saw, especially during 2020, where we had uh, a couple of different racial incidents uh, in the months of protests, riots, yeah. and every, uh, political upheaval after that. Um, I started to look around at uh, uh, church responses, Christian mm-hmm. responses, evangelical yeah. responses. And I looked at the world, and I looked at uh, Christian leaders, and I saw the exact same thing. Yeah. Like division, mm-hmm. vitriol, mm-hmm. and then online, division, vitriol. Yeah. Exact yeah. same thing. Yeah. Why, do you, why is it that the church is as just as divided as the world on racial issues? <clears throat> You know, I think that that's a larger question. Why the church looks like the world so much on some on too many issues? Uh, I, I think part of it is that as long as much as we like to say that we're a countercultural society, we often are not, and it is easier to go along with the culture in a lot of ways. Now, we'll pick a couple of issues which would be countercultural on, but then we generally go with the world instead of thinking through the the ramifications of what our faith really means and. I'm not unaware of the implications of what I present, not just on racial issues, but on a lot. I mean, what if we start really believing about human depravity, that we as humans cannot figure it all out, and that we need to find ways in which we we need to be held in check as much as everyone else? I think that that would change a lot of how we approach things. We would would not be so confident that we have all the right answers. And... One of the things is when you're very confident you have all the right answers, it has a couple of implications. One of the implications, research shows this, is that when you're so confident you have all the right answers, you have a harder time, uh, you have a harder time understanding people who disagree with you, and you have a tendency to see them not as wrong but as evil. Uh, and, and thus you increase polarization. So, uh, and then, you know, when you're so confident, and I think me and you talked about this last night, when you're so confident that you have all the right answers, you tend to fear other people getting power, so much so that you may engage in activities that violate your own sense of moralities. Because you have to keep that power because, you know, you losing that power is not just about inconvenience. Unspeakable things will happen if you lose that power. And so you have to do whatever you can to keep that power. And there's research on, on terrorists, well, just terrorists, and that's a lot of what motivates what they do. So, there's a lot of implications if we take seriously the implications, the theological implications of our faith. And unfortunately, I don't think we do often enough. Mm. Yeah, I think it, it gives more uh, uh, personal humility, mm-hmm. like you said, and an understanding of our own uh, fallibility, our own depravity. But then once we go on a broader scale as well, it also makes us more willing uh, whenever our side is in power. Yes. Whether that be the White House or yeah. uh, Congress or whatever else. Uh, more or in the Southern Baptist Convention right now. True, yeah, even yeah. Outside, outside of politics, yeah. to understand uh, that even our side needs to have checks to their power. Because yeah. mm-hmm. uh, one thing that concerns me is uh, authoritarianism growing mm-hmm. on both sides of the aisle, yeah. I think, because yeah. they want us to remain in power, keep the other side from being in power. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so resisting that authoritarian mindset, which says, well, if we could just be in control, 
yeah. and then expand our control, then everything will be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, forgetting uh, forgetting the depravity and and why uh, our founders, you know, put checks and balances in the government because they also believed in yeah. depravity. That's what drove them. So. Um, we're running out of time. The last question I want to ask you, and we have more questions. I'm sorry, guys. We're, we're, we'll, we'll work out our schedules to do a follow-up podcast so we can get to more questions. But the last one I want to ask you is, how do we put the gospel at the center of our uh, racial conversations? Yeah. Okay, so let me phrase this in this way. All right. Uh, we live in a post-Christian society right now. All right? So I'm sure you all are familiar with this. I mean, uh, we used to being a society where Christianity was sort of default. And if you went in a town, you kind of felt like you had to find a church, kind of felt like you had to, even if you didn't really go that often, but just to go every now and then and just say you're a member of a church. People don't feel that way anymore. People feel that, you know, I can get what I need. I don't have to step foot in a church because we live in a post-Christian society. People are going to come to Christianity, come to us, if we offer them something they're not getting outside of of our faith. I think this is one big avenue we can offer something they, they're not getting outside of our faith. What if, you know, just imagine with me, what if Christians became known as the group that, that has these great conversations on racial issues and actually works out problems? People will come to, come to look at, what is it about Christianity that's doing that? What about, people are, you know, what is it about people of this faith that's doing that? That will draw people. If we get our act together on racial issues, it has all sorts of implications as what we can do in a post-Christian world where people no longer feel the obligation to become somewhat involved with Christianity. But we have to get our act together. We have to figure it out. And like you said, we have to, as Christians, stop sounding like the rest of the world, being as polarized, and finding ways in which we can unite instead of argue with one another. So. I do think that this is perhaps what God, one of the ways God could use race to actually bolster who we are as Christians if we can do the hard work to learn the skills we need and to move forward. Uh, and, so, and plus, because our solution really is tied to a central component of the gospel, which is human depravity, you know, as people come and as we you know, perhaps teach them active listening and other things that are not directly spiritually based, but then how do we get here? We can talk about how we understand human depravity and how why this is important. I think we really bring people closer to God, closer to Christ in that way. Mm, absolutely. Good work. Uh, well, thank you. We're, like I said, we have a lot more questions, but we're running out of time. Uh, uh, before we uh, close this Q&A, I just really want to thank you for making thank the trip down here, yes. uh, especially to your, your uh, family. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you to them for allowing you to come down here and be with us. Really appreciate it. Um, Guys, remember, uh, pick up the book. It's really worth the time and the read. Uh, A lot more fleshed out there, uh, and we could even uh, have more conversations together if if we get this and uh, continue this on beyond just one weekend. Uh, So would you guys give a very hearty thank you to George? (laughs)